So our friends. Um, uh, by the way, when uh, it just occurs to me now as I'm speaking, because the acoustics are different outside, if you're sitting far away and you don't hear so well, maybe you could just r- wave at me as I'm speaking and uh, I, I'll try and lift my voice a little. And if uh, there's also there's also some space on the rugs further forward, so feel free to come closer as well. Like you, maybe, I've been uh, enjoying the sunshine and uh, bird song and the uh, beauty of the grounds and the trees, and particularly this uh, plane tree here, which I've always admired since coming to Gaia House, and it's rather wild and gnarly shape. And the, the spread of its branches, this one behind us, and it really goes a long way from the tree. And just the kind of, uh, it's pretty impressive, as well as this, this rather enormous and very old oak tree behind us. And so as we uh, have gone through the day, uh, sensing into the moments of life, and just re- and reflecting on the fact that it's the summer solstice, and... Uh, that that's been a sort of historically in the European tradition and the, in whatever old British tradition has been a significant moment in the calendar, longest day, the shortest night. So uh, partly uh, with those uh, thoughts, I thought it would be nice to spend some time outside together in the evening. And also reflecting on the my own love of nature and my own history of practice both in monasteries in uh, Thailand and India and some extended periods living in the cedar forest in the Himalayas and the way in which the the contact with the natural world has has uh, not just informed my practice but actually felt like many times that that uh, the contact with the natural world has been my teacher. And also reflecting on how significant trees were in the life of the Buddha. Pretty much all the significant, or certainly many of the significant moments in the life of the Buddha happened under trees. Buddha was born under a tree. His mother gave birth to him at the foot of a tree and actually the the kind of tree that it was is described in the suttas and I can't remember right now what kind you probably don't need that much information <laughs> later on in the, his life when the Buddha was in his early 30s and was really struggling like we spoke last night of our practice being a struggle so the Buddha went through a kind of six year period of an intensifying struggle with his practice. Struggling to attain a particular states, tr- struggling to make his mind, um, to control his mind, basically. And then at one point, 
he, when he was feeling weak and discouraged and exhausted, he had the memory of being a teenager and lying under a tree. And in this memory as a teenager, he remembered uh, lying down at the foot of a tree, watching the activity of the day that people were doing nearby. And he recalled feeling very relaxed and yet simultaneously very uh, much in contact with what was happening. So much so that in the memory of it 20 years later, the sense of it came back to him very strongly. Relaxation and clarity. We were speaking last night, right, about the way our associations with relaxation tend to be around going unconscious. And equally, our associations with uh, being very alert or concentrated usually carry with them associations of stress. I remember being told to concentrate a lot at school. Right? All my uh, school reports always said something about that, mm-hmm. that I need to concentrate more. And so that's certainly for me, and I uh, would imagine in your own way, the, that's the encouragement we get to concentrate, concentrate. And the, the sense I have of concentration is a certain kind of knitted eyebrows, hunched shoulders, got to concentrate. So this meditative state where we're inviting both a relaxation, a softening, an allowing, and where we're making room for a brightness, a focus, a steadiness of attention. And that's rather unusual, uh, that's an unfamiliar state to us, given our associations of relaxation, meaning going semi-conscious or unconscious, of concentration involving some effort. And so often we bring that kind of stressful effort to our practice. You may have noticed today, yourself. You know, that sense of struggling with practice, of trying to be more attentive, trying to have your mind stay with the breath. And the very trying itself creating the, the tension patterns in the body that actually further condition a lot of inner activity. So the Buddha had this memory of that sense of that quality of relaxation and yet in the relaxation, the quality of an, a contact, an intimacy, right, say, with what was happening. And it, was a, it woke him up to the way he'd been struggling in a rather tight and narrow way. And it, it changed the tack of his practice. And that was directly preceded the next significant event under the tree, which was uh, the, uh, the night of awakening, sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, in, uh, where some of you may have been in Bodh Gaya in, in northern India. And pretty much every time the Buddha gives uh, meditation instructions, when we look back in the texts, he always begins his meditation instructions in the same way. Prior to describing practice, he starts by, by describing that the meditator, having gone to the root of a tree or some other suitable place, establishes herself or himself in meditation posture. 
and establishes themselves with mindfulness to the fore. So this is this is not really the this seems like it's not really the meditation instruction, right? This is just the setup. Having gone to the root of a tree, or some other suitable place, and I just find it interesting that the Buddha highlights doesn't just say having found a suitable place. Is having gone to the root of a tree, because obviously that's what he'd learned, that this root of a tree was a highly suitable place. So, here we are, in a highly suitable place. Setting up his, the, the posture, like we emphasise today, those different activations of the quality of awareness that come from the different aspects of posture. And then this line, establishing, we can translate it in different ways, establishing oneself in awareness. And again, this morning we've spoken about the, the fact that awareness is always present, and it's always right here. It doesn't say one sits down and cultivates and makes oneself aware. Instruction is one takes one's seat and establishes oneself in the recognition of the immediacy of awareness. The, the, the word that's used for that, establishing oneself in sati sampajanya, is the Pali word. And that's the term that's uh, you kind of been, rather unfortunately, I would say, translated, or has been translated by this rather unfortunate, clumsy, maybe misleading word, which is running, you know, which is spreading wild, like wildfire in our culture, it seems, which is the word mindfulness. Unfortunate because it's a strange word, mindfulness. <laughs> right? That seems to be not. We don't come here to for to fill up our minds anymore. Usually, we come with some opposite intention. We come to get away from mindfulness, right? And a full mind, a busy mind, an overactive mind, and some sense. Of uh, that, there's more possibility that we're looking for for a simpler, more direct, more spacious kind of mind. So, if we look a li- just a little bit at the etymology, sati sampajanya. Sati is the root is to remember, to recollect. We might translate it as an immediacy of recollection. Which of course is a bit clumsy, right? If you you don't want to write that on the mindfulness poster, <laughs> practice of immediacy of recollection. But that's kind of what's implied in the word sati that the Buddha uses: a sense of of the the recalling where we are, a grounding oneself in the in the collection, in the recollection of this experience. And the sampajanya. Um, means a kind of a clear comprehension, a, cl- uh, a kind of clarity of meeting with, of not- knowing, of understanding what's happening. So one establishes oneself in this rather direct and immediate contact with life, which we've been exploring today. One establishes oneself 
Um, this is a, a kind of deepening trajectory as our practice goes on. One establishes with oneself in a clear in di- a comprehension of, in a direct meeting with our unfolding experience. Like we were saying this morning, so as to understand the nature of our experience, the nature of this experience. And in many ways, certainly in the light of the way we've been practicing today, we might uh, rather think of this practice not so much as mindfulness, but maybe as bodyfulness. This emphasis on an embodied knowing, a visceral knowing, an, Im- an embodied did I just say that? An embodied knowing? <laughs> well, the, you see how important it is, right? If I say it twice. And, of course, that's part of the potency of uh, really including uh, the mindful movement that Gail's uh, been leading and will lead throughout the week. I wonder if you noticed, you know, in that, in that meditation before tea, having, you know, in, in bringing the... Uh, the attention into the sensation of movement. As in, in the moment of, of the movement itself, but also for some time afterwards often, the, it's like we've brought a certain sati, a kind of an immediate recollection of what's happening, a certain sampajanya, a directness of experience into ourselves. And often the experience in sitting meditation subsequent to 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 really paying a close attention to to doing some body work and activates a certain depth and steadiness of awareness so we might like i say call this practice bodyfulness at least in how we've been practicing so far and we've certainly been giving a lot of emphasis to sensing the body, contact with the body, allowing the sense of body sitting, uh, uh, the, the naturalness of body breathing. But the, the question that might arise out of that is what do we actually mean by body? Because it may be that there's a lot, there's rather a lot of assumptions we have around body that get in the way. The first of those really being the sense of body as thing. And you might just notice as we're sitting, if I just, if you do, what do you, what comes to mind? What are the associations you have when I say, when you think of your body? And you say, my body. My body. Just to notice for yourself inwardly. As you... Uh, as you let that sense be here. What do you understand by your body? First of all, as I say, there's that sense of, of body as as thing. As something that I'm the owner of. 
And actually, our sense of identifying with the being the body or being the owner of a body is already a rather strange thing if we look closely. Our, so where our identity goes tends to shift between one or the other. Sometimes body seems to be the thing that I am. So that if uh, somebody uh, uh, knocks us as they go past, we think, oh, she touched me. Or if they brush us rather hard, oh, he hurt me. So then the sense of self is directly uh, identified with the body, as if this, this thing called body is who I am. And yet in other moments, we identify with some mysterious other thing that has a body. We say, oh, my body. You see what's happened there. The sense of identity has shifted from being the body to being something else, which we rather unconsciously take to be our mind, or even not our mind, but some mysterious third thing called our self, we don't know quite what we mean when we say that. I would probably defy anyone to give a, 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 a definition of what do they mean by self, distinct from body or mind. But nevertheless, that sense arises for us all the time, and we think of having a body. Or the, the, and the ownership of that either goes to the whole body, we talk about my body, or this rather strange sort of spiritual language creeps in and we speak about the body. As if it doesn't, you know, I'm, just, I'm too spiritual to have ownership of the body. It's just the body, just this thing that comes along for the ride. Or the sense of ownership goes to different bits of it. And we talk about my leg, my arm, my chest, etc., etc. And implicit, whether the sense of identity by moments is, and you know, this is just normal human experience, but it's, and it's going along usually unconsciously. So this is part of what our practice does, it starts to wake us up to these ongoing unconscious assumptions that actually don't stand up very well when we start to really explore them. Whether the, whether the identity goes to being the body or having a body, that sense of body as thing is a rather cumbersome, rather limited sense. And so what we're doing as an antidote to the sense of body as thing is we're just meeting body as process. And we've referred today to natural aliveness of body. The naturalness of body walking. The naturalness of body breathing. And rather than attuning to body as a thing, my arms, my legs, my etc., etc., just attuning what, we, what the Buddha calls, and what we've been calling, knowing the body in the body. Body as sensation. As this ongoing dance of movement, temperature, density, the, 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 the movement between the pleasant and unpleasant uh, nature of different sensations, with the intention, rather than thinking our unfolding sensations, the intention of uh, living inside them as they unfold. We might say knowing the body from the inside or knowing the body in real time. Including as we're sitting here this evening. 
you may have already just noticing the change in temperature as the sunlight disappears and whether one tends to think about that change in temperature and that's the primary way of experiencing it oh it's getting colder what shall i do did i bring enough clothes with me will i get and catch a chill etc I mean, I know it's not very cold, right? But <laughs> Gail and I live in southern Europe, so for us it's getting chilly now. Or whether we're actually ju- attuned to just the kind of the way body adjusts for the change in temperature, the the kind of the, just the sensational uh, kind of shift that goes on. So we co- our practice compensates for the tendency to see body as thing by meeting allowing, sensing, body as process, body as this dance of sensation and vibration. If we look closely, we also see that to, to um, inhabit bodily experience is to be confronted by all kinds of descriptions and distortions and discrepancies and denial for these about body. And it's another way in which we tend to abstract ourselves from the uh, just from this kind of unfolding, this miraculous, extraordinary unfolding of bodily life by the descriptions that uh, that locate us in terms of the familiarity of this this body what it looks like its age its gender etc 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 so the just the basic description i think of my body and i ascribe martinness to it and i give it uh, age and color and gender all of which are true right for the purposes of living in the world except for m- most people that's all we've got right that contributes to body as thing the belief that that is true as if, uh, as if the gender and age and shape and uh, size, etc., etc., as if that actually makes up a human experience. And there's also then the, the beyond that simple description, age, gender, etc., there's the distorting descriptions, the sense of all, all the stuff we get into around body image. The sense that this body and its shape and, or size or gender or colour or whatever it might be is in some way um, wrong. The trouble with my nose or my legs or my belly or my bum or um, whatever it is. And we can all find the way we endlessly uh, fuss with and fret with the, the, what, the what we can make up as being wrong around our body and how much uh, um, anxiety or dissatisfaction, misery we can make for ourselves with that. And we're familiar, of course, with the ways that's culturally uh, encouraged and supported. And we're probably familiar with the ways that uh, the pressure around that is a lot worse for women than it is for men, generally. And again, our practice is really an antidote for rather than, uh, re- than body being this 
evocation of what's wrong with me. That the sense of body as process allows us actually to sense the miracle of this body, the wonder of this body. One of my teachers in uh, his time in Thailand over several years as a monk, one of them practiced for a few months, I think, maybe three or nine months, was for three hours every afternoon was to this to lift and <coughs> drop his right hand and just to contemplate that. I'm not going to lead you through three hours of it, but it's kind of tempting. I mean, what, what, what makes this happen? I can't. I've, I've, I've contemplated it a fair bit myself, and I can't tell you the process. And maybe, you're, maybe there's some anatomists or neuroscientists or somebody who will be able to give us some biological or neurological explanation, which is fascinating, but I'm not interested in that either. But what this? What's happening this? We can't make sense of this, actually, in the direct experience, other than the mysteriousness by which body is animated. Body is here. Body responds to life, to intention. I can't, I can't track the process. Of course, we can understand it neurologically, biologically, and it's super helpful for all kinds of medical interventions to, to be able to know that. But just this. When we, the more we develop an immediate, an intimate an relationship with body, a relationship unmitigated by ideas of body as, as thing, unmitigated by the descriptions and distortions that I tell myself about what's going on here, the more we inhabit this as a miracle, the more we inhabit this as wonder, the more we inhabit this physical experience with a sense of gratitude. And with a sense of it's fleeting fragility. That's, that's one of the other Ds, the denial. Right? Living in this body as if it's just, uh, as if it's mechanical. As if it can be patched up and uh, will carry on. Whereas actually it's hurtling along at an unknown rate towards a certain destination. the death that we uh, so much push out of consciousness. And again, culturally, we have a very uneasy relationship with death. And some, um, some sense that even one only has to mention death for it to be seen as morbid or something. And morbid is a very pejorative kind of word. My mother used to say, oh, don't be so morbid. <laughs> um, what some of you may have sat with, uh, hung out with the skeleton in the walking room. Rather wonderful, but maybe stark. And certain, some have been a little freaked out by it when they've uh, come across it here. A reminder of, oh, this isn't going to last forever. In fact, this may not last very long at all.
An antidote, a practice as an antidote to that denial of death. And to the discrepancies that we make up out of that. A sense that, uh, you know, the, um, the difficulty we have with the process of ageing. The clutching for a youth and beauty that's, that's absolutely unhold on to a bull. had a, a, a friend who would often, as she was getting older, I, I'd noticed her uh, at the Mulan looking in the mirror like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the kind of disappointment, and I noticed it myself as I kind of basically, you know, shrivel up and get, start to get wrinkled and greyer, it's a kind of disappointment. Actually, it's more than disappointment. It's a kind of sense of a gross unfairness <laughs> happening. Like, I, I didn't ask for this. I, I don't want this. I like uh, youth and vitality. And it's leaking. It's only just starting, you know. Some of you are uh, considerably older than me. But it's only just starting. But it's le- it, that youth and vitality is leaking away. <laughs> Nothing to do about it. And sometimes I find myself uh, just uh, very much at ease with that. But sometimes I find myself surprised by the, not just the disappointment, but the, the uh, in- indignation. That's the word for it, indignation. And yet, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Like I said to the friend here, I said, you know, you're never, ever be as young or as firm again as you are right now. And the tendency to look back on how young and firm I was ten years ago, but hey, in another ten years, this will look young and firm. (laughs) It's rather a tragedy, rather a limitation to be locked in to... A, view, a sense of body as thing a body that's trying to hold on to a life that it has no capacity to retain and all the while body is speaking to us of its miraculousness speaking to us through its fluidity through its immediacy through the natural intelligence of physical life that right now, you know, without uh, volition, without anyone being in control, without me doing anything, self-regulating temperature, heartbeat, breath. And of course it's a good job we're not in control. How good have you been today at remembering to breathe? <laughs> and yet, there's this way in which body takes care of itself. Our practice as an antidote to that denial, to living through the descriptions and distortions that we attribute to body. And as we do that, the qualities, the qualities we've spoken of, 
of a grounding in bodily awareness, a directness of contact with life, the quality of a sense of the preciousness of this experience, this fleeting life, this unique moment, the qualities of life's fluidity that start to stand out to us. And as we pay attention in that way, uh, a kind of growing and deepening trust in those things, a trust in life's immediacy. That there's more to, that there's more possibility for us in meeting what's happening right now than there is in trying to figure out all the complexities of the stories and scenarios that arise. A sense of the potency of abiding in the fluidity of life. We can listen to some fancy Buddhist teachings about impermanence. It's easy to agree with impermanence. Even science agrees with impermanence now. And we can cite the fact that even atomically, things that are looking like tables that look solid, the atoms are wibbling about. And so everything is impermanent, even tables. <laughs> but that's no substitute. That's no for, for a real relationship with life's fluidity. We find a real relationship with life's fluidity in these changing sensations. And we find the more I'm able to live in this... And as we notice through the day, sometimes th- this is very pleasant, sweet, lying on the grass after lunch, the smell of the grass, the sound of the birds, the warmth of the sun. Exquisite. And then in other moments, this is unpleasant. Legs have gone to sleep, back is aching, the guy at the front seems to have just forgotten to ring the bell. <laughs> What do you do? What do you do with the natural fluidity of experience? The, the, uh, that, that movement from what we like to what we don't like. Ordinary tendency is to a lot of fussing and freaking out about it. And a deepening practice is one where we come alive in the midst of that fluidity, where we grow, as I say, to trust it more and more. The more we see that things have their natural rhythm, the more we allow them to have their natural rhythm, the less we feel the need to interfere a lot, to, to ma- try and manipulate our experience to be in accordance with our wishes. Of course we have wishes, of course we prefer the pleasant to the unpleasant, all of us. But the more we manipulate our experience to try and have it be more and more pleasant, and the more we manipulate our experience to f- try and fend off the unpleasant, the narrower our life becomes, the smaller our comfort zone gets, the more demanding, the more defensive we are. And so our practice, as I say, is an antidote to that.
so in meeting body directly we undercut the tendency to see body as thing as object as something we own or in, or are in control of in in noticing examining the descriptions and distortions the the body image the denial around its natural process we find ourselves more freely able to inhabit the actual changing reality of body and we also as we practice in the word this way are confronted with the seeming boundary between what we call self and what we call world and common sense uh, tells us very easily where that boundary is right it's the, it's it's here it's the shape of this uh, physical body and yet for a rather uncommon sense the uncommon sense of direct contact that boundary isn't so certain isn't so rigid so just as you pay attention to your experience now as you feel the coolness of the air on your skin as you feel the pressure of body on the ground as you hear the squawk of the crows can you tell where the sound of the birds ends and the hearing of it begins do you find in your direct experience the where the the coolness of the air ends and your experience of the air begins is is body so rigidly defined not in the idea but in the experience or do we find ourselves actually porous to the touch of life do we find that this mysterious capacity of consciousness that for some bizarre reason we've consigned and confined to living in our heads that we actually find that consciousness doesn't have a location that what we call this body far from being defined by this shape of this organism actually is the body of life in which sensations unfold and move in which sounds and sights have their life this body of life in which uh, feeling responses are evoked this body of life that also has an extraordinary capacity to think to conceive to imagine to make sense of 
seems rather narrow, rather limited, to take a few elements out of that and latch onto them. To lose the rest of the universe and only be left with what I think, what I hear, what I see, what I feel, what I want. That seems like a kind of uh, mania. Rigid. Reductive. When all the while, actually, when we pay, when we really pay attention, this body of life is what's informing our experience. Where do you end, and the evening begin? This is the invitation of our practice, not to get good at following our breath, but to be here where life is, edgeless life, boundless life, inconceivable life, and yet a life which is very directly meetable, experienceable. And it turns out that the more we're around to meet it, the more intimate we are with what's happening, the more inclusive that intimacy is. The more that the birds and the sunlight and the pressure of our knees on the floor speak with the same voice, the voice of awareness the voice of fluidity, the voice of a free relationship with life. So friends, the evening is yours. Let yourself walk in it gently. Listen to it gently. Allow the contact with what's happening. Whether it's what's happening so-called in here or whether it's what's happening so-called out there. Let the contact with what's happening be your practice. Let it lead you closer into the heart of things. Okay. Thank you.